If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. Welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. Today we've got the latest episode in our Bayer Tapestry series, presented by David Musgrove. Welcome back to our Unravelling the Bayer Tapestry series. This is the fifth and final episode, What's the Present and the Future for the Tapestry? My name is David Musgrove. I'm content director for BBC History Magazine and HistoryExtra.com. When it was announced back in 2018 that the embroidery might be loaned from bio to the UK, I set to writing a book about it with Professor Michael Lewis, who is head of the Portable Antiquities Scheme at the British Museum and a member of the Tapestries Scientific Committee. The book is published by Thames and Hudson in April 2021 and is called The Story of the Biotapestry Unravelling the Norman Conquest. In this podcast series, I've been joined by a stellar array of podcast experts discussing the big questions in tapestry scholarship. Where, when, how, why it was made, what's in it and what's missing. This time, to wrap up, we're looking at the tapestry as an object of public history, how it's used to represent the conquest and the Middle Ages more widely as a visual prompt, and specifically how it might be best presented if it is loaned to the UK at any point in the near future. For this final episode, Michael Lewis and I are joined by Professor Michael Wood, historian and broadcaster, columnist for BBC History magazine, and an expert on all things Anglo-Saxon, and Dr Janina Ramirez, also a broadcaster and an art and cultural historian specialising in the early medieval period at the University of Oxford, and an author of academic, popular and children's history books. And because I've got two Michaels in the conversation, we refer to Michael L and Michael W., Though, to be honest, they sound quite different, so I'm sure you'll work out very quickly who's speaking. We're in the last of our of our Biotapestry series, uh, episode five, and this episode we're talking uh, principally about the, the public history of the tapestry and the future of the tapestry, particularly in the light of the, of the proposed loan uh, back to the UK. But we might also allow ourselves to drop back into some of the conversations we've had already if that seems irrelevant. So joined by uh, Michael Lewis, Michael Wood and Janina Ramirez. Welcome everybody. Thank you for joining. Um, right, so the first question uh, to, to, to throw in when we're thinking about the uh, sort of the place of the tapestry is why is the tapestry important? And, and that you can take kind of two national angles on that. Why is it important for the British and why is it important for the French? So I wonder if anyone's got any opening comments on that. I'm going to throw that to Janina first to, to, to offer a view. Well, it's a delight to be with you talking about the Bayeux tapestry. And um, I think it's it's very interesting the, int- the the great enthusiasm with which the announcement was met in 2018 that the tapestry might be coming over to the UK is a real sign of how passionately people feel about it on both sides of the channel. Now, I've had experience of this from an academic point of view also in making television programmes that it is so interesting how history is perceived either side of that small piece of water. Uh, if you do the Hundred Years' War, for example, the way it's interpreted 
interpreted in England is almost entirely different to how it's interpreted in France. And certainly, I think attitudes towards the tapestry are also founded on um, nationalist interests, really. I think uh, just the very fact that it's called the Tapestry of Queen Matilda in France, the idea that it's connected directly to William the Conqueror's wife, the fact that it was, uh, they, they, there's still claims that it was made in France. That's something that's taking a while to, to filter through the scholarship about. And over here in England, I think it's also perceived as a seminal piece, but perhaps for reasons that might need questioning, because I study the early medieval period, as, as do the other Michaels, and in that sense, we tend to think about early medieval coming to an end in 1066, moving into the Romanesque, moving into the, the high medieval. And we have this date drummed into our minds from childhood, 1066, 1066, the moment, the date where everything changed. Now, things obviously did change, but I think there are other important dates that come before 1016, the importance of the uh, the fact that we had a, a Danish king in England. These things aren't taught in school, but 1066 is. It's almost as if the Bayer Tapestry, um, the Battle of Hastings, the arrival of William the Conqueror is the starting point for English history when we look backwards. And I think that that's, again, an interesting difference across the channel. Um, So it's hugely important, but I think it needs to be understood in context. It needs to be understood with what came before, what comes after. And um, but as a piece of art, it is such a remarkable survival. And it is the sort of starting point for so many discussions about the medieval period. Um, Michael, Michael L, you, I know that you've uh, you spent a lot of time in in bio as in part of your role as a member of the of the uh, scientific committee, and so you have a good sense about how it's viewed and understood over there, don't you? Which is uh, which I think you you do see as quite different to to the way it's seen uh, here in the UK. Yeah, and even in France, I think what's interesting is the difference between Normandy and the rest of France. And indeed, you know, the attitude towards England and the English in Normandy is very different, actually, um, in Normandy than it is uh, to the rest of France. In many ways, in Normandy, they see the Bayer Tapestry in the context of the D-Day invasion uh, or liberation, if you like, of, of 1944. Um, and it's it's fascinating, really, because, you know, as you know, at, um, at the cemetery at Bayer, they have this kind of epitaph to say that the the men um, that were once under William the Conqueror have come back to free the Conqueror's homeland. And that narrative is very, very much picked up um, in Normandy. But for the rest of France, of course, 1066 means nothing, um, really, because Duke um, William of Normandy was just a vassal in principle of the French king. Um, and I guess the history of France, a bit like in England, um, focuses on the kind of national narrative. And as has has already been said, I mean, in terms of um, in England, um, that's very much about um, after 1066, we somehow became something completely different, never conquered again, et cetera, et cetera. In France, it's about Normandy has nothing to do with the history of the French monarchy. Um, And so it's a narrative that's been kind of, I suppose, produced by... um, you know, French historians, essentially, that kind of distances itself from the history of Normandy and therefore, in some respects, um, the history of England, though, of course, they interlink in other ways um, at later dates. Um, Michael W., what's, what's, what's your take on this? Yeah, I mean, just apropos what Michael said, I think, obviously, in France, um, you know, the great early figure is Charlemagne and the, the, he's the, the, the pater Europae, he's the father of Europe. And, of course, the Carolingian Renaissance is 
the great foundation or the first Renaissance of Europe in which the, the Anglo-Saxon kingdoms participated. So their view of early medieval history is quite different from ours. For us, um, 1066, as Janina says, is just the iconic uh, moment. And uh, for me, I think that there's a lot of talk about the myth of the Norman yoke. And in the 17th century, the English radicals in the English Civil War, the levellers and the diggers and all those people, thought that by overthrowing the monarchy, they were overthrowing uh, uh, the, the, the legacy of the Normans. What is the king and his ministers except the conqueror and his generals? You know, they believed that the English had lost their liberties in 1066 and they were going to retrieve them. And that myth is really, really deep-rooted among the English. I'm not talking about Scots, Welsh and Irish who have their own take on, on these, the Norman period. But, um, and I suspect there was a, there was a folk uh, tradition about that in the vernacular right the way through from the 11th century. You know, it was an absolutely shattering, horrendous event. We can talk more about that later. Uh, devastating. Went for decades. A terrible suppression, you know, mass killings. Um, a lot of contemporary writers, even people of part Norman descent, tell us that, you know. So I think that that myth is a real myth. So I think is, is a real has a real basis to it, if you like. And I think, therefore, there is a tradition in England that this was a catastrophic defeat, which... Um, was very divisive. Its, its aftermath was very divisive for the country for a very long time. So um, um, I think 1066 still stands like that. And I loved one of your, was it Elizabeth, in one of your earlier podcasts, who said the biotapestry for me is, is a kind of passion of England in the sense of a, an almost religious narrative. And um, so I, I think that there is that psychological thing about yeah. it. There's also a sense, I think, in which, uh, you know, like you're saying, there's this mythic association with it. And um, the idea that it's been in France for 950 years, and yet it's probably made in England, probably made by uh, English artisans, made as a document of suppression, a document of um, the idea that the, the English have been subsumed under Normandy, and yet the English can't get their hands on it. <laughs> There's something tantalising about that too. And I think that just the history of the tapestry, what happened to it, shows its mythic status in the last few centuries because it's 1792, I think, when the revolutionaries um, want to destroy it. And actually, it's it's very understandable why French revolutionaries would want to destroy the Bayeux tapestry. It's a celebration of all things royal, isn't it, and, and oppressive. Um, and they want to use it to wrap up their ammunition wagon. Uh, so, but it's it's then saved by the people of, of the town and preserved. So there's these wonderful stories that continue afterwards. You've got the connection with Napoleon, you, Napoleon recognising that it's it's something to be shouted about in, in uh, 1803 when he puts it on display in the Louvre. And even right up to World War II, I think, you know, Michael, you were saying this about the idea that it has this, this recent association with Normandy, with the liberation, and the fact that it's it's almost taken to Berlin. Himmler almost gets it out of the Louvre, almost gets it there. This SS guard is just sneaking it out of Bayer, getting it to Paris. And all of that is drama. It's modern day drama. It's recent, but it's telling the most dramatic story from a period that lots of people like to think of as a dark age, not a particularly interesting time of our history. But the Bayeux Tapestry shatters that. It, it makes the, the medieval period fascinating, dramatic, noisy, exciting. That's why it's such a wonderful artwork. 
That um, the the, the Nazi element to it, interest in the tapestry is fascinating, isn't it, Michael? Uh, Michael L, do you, um, you you've, we've we've talked about that before. So um, just remind us of the, of why the Nazis were so interested in the uh, in the tapestry. Yeah, well, it's quite a complicated story in in a way because um, people were interested in tapestry for quite different reasons. And whilst it's quite easy to see it as a sort of nationalistic interest, because obviously that was behind some of the interest of these groups. Um, you know, they thought that the the Bayer tapestry was identified with um, early German culture um, um, because of the connections, of course, of the Normans um, with the Vikings and, and all of that sort of stuff. Um, but in some ways, the people that actually researched the Bayer tapestry then in, in 1940 were serious academics. Um, you know, they'd obviously sided with the Nazi regime, and we sometimes talk about them as German, sometimes as Nazis, but they were sort of both, of course. They were German academics that were um, in with the regime and able to access this really important um, uh, history um, document. Um, and so they, they came over, they negotiated, it seems, um, with the, the town of Bayer to, to be able to see um, the tapestry um, up close. They photographed it and they got all sorts of different experts to do, in some ways, um, a lot of analysis that would be fantastic to do. Um, again, they they photographed the whole of the tapestry. They got different experts in terms of um, knowing about art historical aspects of the tapestry, the history, um, people who knew about embroidery, all of that sort of stuff brought them all together. But of course, that work was never published. Um, it just sort of came to an end. Um, and um, uh, like um, Janina says, I mean, there has been this um, kind of, um, you know, interest in the the top, the top echelons of the Nazi regime to be able to take this tapestry back um, to Germany. Um, I mean, indeed, um, there's a sort of story that when Paris falling to the, the Allies, um, that um, these SS officers were sent up to the kind of um, guy who was in charge of um, looking after Paris and said, basically, can we have the Bayer tapestry, please? And he said, well, help yourself. It's in the Louvre, but the Americans have just taken it. Um, so it just, it was really close, actually, um, for this, um, for the tapestry not being, um, you know, kept um, in in France and, and going to Germany. And of course, that would have been the first time that Bayer tapestry probably had, had have left France since it arrived, probably. Which is which is why it would be so seismic for it to, uh, for it to, to travel to the UK in alone as you say it's, it's basically it's been there or thereabouts for for, for centuries so um just moving on a bit, I suppose, um, uh, uh, Michael W. And, and Ginny, you're both uh, public historians, you're TV historians, you're, you're, you're fronting programme. I wonder how far does the does the tapestry percolate into public historical representations of the Norman Conquest? And the answer is obviously it, it totally dominates it. But I suppose, let me let me put the question to you, could you make a TV programme about the Norman Conquest without using the biotapestry uh, imagery? Um, uh, Michael W., what's, what's, your, what's, your, what's your view? Well, you could. <laughs> I mean, um, uh, you know, people have different ideas about how you can make history programmes and uh, you can make them with actors or without actors. You can make them with this or that. You can be very austere. Um, but who would want to do a programme without the biotapestry? I mean, it is the most incredible record, a visual record, and everybody in TV searches for the visuals. And, and there is a visual which unbelievably is not static. It's got movement all the way through it. You know, you can move the camera with the movements and it, it's incredibly expressive. Individuals talk to each other, messengers speak, uh, people hold each other by the arm and say something. Uh, the captions sometimes give you a clue to what the, uh, they're saying. So it, it's just an absolutely brilliant 
um, resource for a filmmaker, I think. And, uh, um, you know, that's one of the, it's one of the great tools for talking about the Norman Conquest. Of course, it almost determines our, our visual impression of the Norman Conquest and the Battle of Hastings, doesn't it? And uh, um, perhaps uh, not always accurately, but uh, no, you'd never, you'd never do it without. But, it. I mean, that's one of the things that, uh, that that Michael and I have talked about in, in the book that we've written is that is the is the sense that the tapestry kind of does skew our understanding of the Norman Congress, at least in the in the public present, because it is such a such a visual and brilliant uh, representation of it. So, Janina, what, what would you what would you do if you were making a program about the Norman Congress? I'm sure you have made made lots of things that uh, that touch on that. Um, how how would you treat the buyer tapestry? Do you think? Well, I think Michael's absolutely right there where he talks about uh, how rich it is, not just for things like costume, um, set design, but also for the the sheer animation of it. I often um, like to tell my students that it's like a comic strip. It is uh, you know, moving on the story with each with each section. But there's that part where the battle's actually taking place, where the horses are falling into the margin where they're contorted and where you know, that is cinematic. That is something you could see playing out on your screen. So the temptation to go to it as a visual resource is great. Um, I am always erring on the side of uh, more evidence is best. That is so tricky with the early medieval period. Um, we don't have much. I, I, I often say it's like putting a thousand piece jigsaw puzzle together with just five bits. And what we don't have surviving would have been um, all the things that are lost to the sands of time. Everything made in wood, everything made in leather, bone, your clothing, fabric. The fact that we have the Bayeux tapestry at all is nigh on a miracle. There are so few fabrics and embroideries and tapestries from that time that survive. So it is, of course, the go-to as a visual record. And I think that um, I think it's about putting in uh, um, all of the evidence together. So, for example, if you're going to do costume design on a Norman conquest the movie then you might want to consult jewelry you might want to consult you know, uh, images in manuscripts images in reliquies and kind of pull together all that different evidence but as a as a go-to i think that then the bear tapestry is not a bad option is it <laughs> Well, I mean, it certainly provides the, the visual imagery that a lot of other medieval events don't have. We don't have yeah. uh, something suitably brilliant for 1016. If we did, then, as you said, you know, that uh, that particular conquest story might be better talked about, mightn't it? Um, <laughs> Uh, Michael, Michael uh, L, we'll, we'll come back to the representation of the uh, of the tapestry in a public format in an exhibition sense in a second. But I just wanted to give Janina just a, a chance to maybe just tell us a bit more about the art historical context that the tapestry sits in. Because in, in this five-part series, we've talked about lots of stuff, but perhaps we haven't dwelt on that quite as much as we could have done. You talked about some of the fabrics and textiles that do survive. And there's not many, but um, but there are one or two. Where, where, where does it sit? What's its, what's its background there, do you think? It is, uh, I think you're right where you were saying there about the fact that you know, if there was a similar amount of, of material evidence surviving from 1016, it might be better known. The reality of history is the things that survive are the things that we go on and write more history about and generate more interest in. So 1066 has this remarkable body of texts 
it has the Bayer tapestry. And we can also look at uh, things like Doomsday. We can look at the um, you know, things that are happening on the ground with castle building, with cathedrals. So there's a whole body of evidence from across disciplines that we can bring together to, to illuminate this, this one year, 1066. But in context, I, I know Michael Wood will agree with me on this as well. It's um, in, in many ways, it's so seismic because it is the destruction of so many things. For example, I study um, early medieval uh, Anglo-Saxon jewellery and metalwork and manuscript illumination. And the very fact that it seems the Bayeux Tapestry was made probably in Kent, probably by, um, and we would call them Anglo-Saxon craftspeople, that indicates the reputation that they had artistically in Europe at this time. I think English history from the empire onwards has skewed it to make it seem like we're a really big island with really exciting history that goes back a long way. But actually, for a long period, we were part of a, a Europe that had superpowers far greater than England. But the one thing we did seem to have was a flourishing artistic community. And that, that thrived in convents, in monasteries, um, and probably in, in towns and villages as well. So I find the art of the 7th, 8th, 9th, 10th century... I find that beautiful. I find the manuscript illuminations second to none. And the fact that Opus Anglicanum, this, this style of English work, um, embroidery, was so popular that the Pope was uh, requesting multiple vestments made by English uh, embroiderers. That says that there was an artist, artistic heritage. That seems to cease relatively soon after 1066. And though there are things like the Bayer Tapestry that for me are almost like a, a swan song that these wonderful craftspeople who've been working for generation after generation in Canterbury create this beautiful piece. And after that moment, Anglo-Saxon society is going to be turned upside down. It's going to be transformed beyond uh, recognition. I don't know if you'd agree with me on that, uh, Michael W. <laughs> and Michael L. Yeah, I mean, I think... <laughs> Well, I think uh, I mean I think anybody who went to the wonderful exhibition at the V&A on Opus Anglicanum a couple of years ago, and there was one last year at the Musée Cluny that I went to in in, in Paris. Um, of course, the the height of the reputation of Opus Anglicanum is like 13th, 14th century, and that's when you get all the great patrons and the popes in Europe requesting it. And of course, it is staggering, absolutely unsurpassed brilliance as works of art, that the Opus Anglicanum of that period. Now, it's obviously a very old tradition in Anglo-Saxon England. You know, in Durham, you've got the stoles and maniples from St. Cuthbert's tomb that were commissioned by a woman called Alflad, not necessarily the Queen, um, it was sometime between 909 and 931. And the, and the quality is staggeringly fabulous, you know, um, with Byzantine models, presumably, to the set figures of the prophets, you know. So, and the fragments that you get in all these places, you've, you, in your long sojourn in Oslo, Nina, you probably had a chance to see the amazing textiles from the uh, 10th, 11th century in, in, in Oslo. You know, this it's a wide tradition there, but obviously it was very strong in, in England and, uh, um, there's so many references in wills and things like that to them, and I, I'm very taken by the the reference to the the widow of the hero of the Battle of Malden, uh, who commissioned a, a tapestry in textam atque depictam, I think it's, it says, uh, commemorating the deeds, the gestis of her husband, 
And, you know, he was the guy who died tragically fighting the Vikings in the Battle of Malden. And Ely tradition had him going up to Northumbria and doing all sorts of things that we don't know anything about. Maybe they were on the tapestry, which was still in existence uh, at the time of the inventory in the early 1100s. So um, that tradition was really vital and living. And, uh, you know, there's an account of King Athelstan visiting a, a kinswoman in Glastonbury, and she's got a, she's a widow, she's got a rather posh house, and she's got needlewomen working for her. So producing the kind of things that the, the Cuthbert textiles are, you know. So um, I, I, like you, probably, I've been fascinated by these podcasts, but I keep asking questions about what comes before. And, and uh, I wonder whether there were, there were also as with the wonderful V&A exhibition where you met kind of Joanna of Beverly and, I don't know, Agatha of Lowestoft and somebody from, you know, there were these uh, craftswomen whose work was so uh, valued that even though they're, they're identified coming from all these different places, especially London, but no doubt Canterbury too, that, that you could draw on that kind of talent to do this kind of thing. Um, but then... And so many questions arise from the podcast, don't they? You know, why is it so big? Where uh, where were they thinking of showing it? And who was it who was thinking of showing it? Is it secular? Is it, uh, you know, I mean, if you take the example of the lady in Ely, uh, her husband's deeds were probably the tapestry would be unrolled on his obit day or on other festivals on the 10th of August or whatever, and his deeds would be narrated. So the, the, the so you're using the little tituli on the, the the scenes to as as cues to narrate the, the the full fuller version of the story, and I've seen this happen in in even in today in Iran. There's a thousand year old tradition of of tale tellers in Iran who unfold their great textile cloths with the scenes on them for the Battle of Karbala and the death of Imam Hussein. And they do it in the villages and they do it in front of the pilgrims. And then you tell the story using the pictures as the keys, you see. So there's all sorts of questions I want to ask Michael L about, um, you know, uh, why is it so big, Michael? Let's take a break here for a second as Michael Lewis gathers his thoughts to consider Michael Wood's questions. We've looked there at some elements in the more recent history of the tapestry and the politicisation of the artefact by those who would want to use it to reinforce their aims and views. Janina will come back to that towards the end of this podcast. Our discussions in early episodes of the series highlighted how it was surely a political object at the time it was created as well. But as Michael Lewis is about to point out, it's perhaps because it's lost its relevance for a time or maybe was hidden from view because it was too much of a hot potato, that it's come down to us today and survived in the form that it has. Anyway, back to the discussion. Can I start on the kind of the the kind of um, artistic influences in a way? Because I think there's some really important points that have been said about this, because as, as we've all said, the, the tapestry is such a big beast, both physically and in its presence, that it dominates um, over all of this other sort of material culture. In my day job, um, you know, I'm an archaeologist and I'm interested in um, small metal finds. Um, and um, what I think is really interesting is just how that evolves over time during the whole of the sort of Anglo-Saxon early medieval period and how different that is in different sorts of countries of Europe um, that, you know, the material culture but also the kind of fusions that you get as well. And obviously, in the later Anglo-Saxon period, there's a there's a massive um, influence of Danish culture, um, Scandinavian culture, into the metalwork that we find. And then, 
um, as, as has been said, I mean, it sort of stops in a way in its tracks. And it doesn't only stop in Britain, it stops in other places in, 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 in a similar sort of way. Okay, it doesn't completely stop, it kind of carries on. But the way I sort of see it, and maybe I'm wrong here, and I'd be interested in what the others think of this, is that the impact of the, the medieval church sort of dominates and um, you get this kind of fusion. So, you know, high medieval, if you like, material culture looks across Western Europe, at least, pretty similar wherever you sort of go. So I think there is a change that happens, not explained by the, the Norman conquest of England, because obviously that only affects e- England. But it is interesting, you know, how that has such a um, a big impact. Now, in terms of the size of the Bayer Tapestry, I've got no idea why it's so long, really. Um, I mean, it's it's such an investment of, um, it would seem, of resources. I mean, I think we've talked about in previous podcasts that, you know, maybe the tapestry is not as um, unique as it, it, it was now. And of course, you know, Michael was talking about some of those other um, textiles that exist. And there is obviously a clear tradition of this. Um, you know, in Scandinavia, in, in in Britain as well. And because of the nature of them, of course, they just don't survive. And that's what makes the Bayer Tapestry, as Dave suggests, even more kind of crazy in a way, um, because um, it's such a big example where all of these smaller fragments hardly, you know, get a show, as it were. So how does that happen? And, and yeah, I mean, my kind of gut reaction, I've got no evidence for this whatsoever, is that for whatever reason, it be, just became out of... Um, out of, uh, you know, its kind of story, its narrative just became um, not very popular, not of very interest, not in, if you like. Um, and it was sort of kind of housed up in the treasury um, at Bayer and completely forgotten about almost, it would seem, uh, until at least the 15th century. And then again, almost forgotten um, until the 1700s. So I think in some ways what explains its survival is because it became insignificant, ironically, at some moment in time, and then has been sort of resurrected um, by us who get kind of fascinated um, with this um, this kind of, this crazy history of the 11th century. Yeah, I couldn't agree more, Michael. I think that's exactly it. The idea that um, if it had remained highly controversial, highly difficult, highly problematic, uh, and presented new problems to different audiences, it would have been destroyed. We know that. So it is an accidental survivor. And in a funny way, it's, it's thankful that it was where it was in France, where where this part of the story hasn't been uh, perhaps fetishized as much as it has in England. But um, there were so many things that both of you were saying there that were getting me excited. The Oseberg tapestries, I was happy to spend time looking at them, as you said, Michael, in Oslo. And um, just this tradition of tapestries doing these sorts of deeds. We tend to think about... Uh, you know, the use of art in the medieval period having a primarily religious function that they would be inside cathedrals. And of course, you know, that's one of the arguments for the Bayer Tapestry as well. But this idea that there's no no Jesus, no Mary, no saints, it's purely the heroic deeds of this this, uh, this individual, William and his army, uh, it, that always seems a slight disconnect as well, because now in the modern world, we tend to separate out the secular and the sacred in a way that wouldn't have happened in the medieval period. And tapestries being the format for that, I think is a really interesting issue that we might not get in manuscript illumination, but we we do get in embroidery because you know, I heard in your earlier podcast, you were talking about where these things would have hung 
Traditionally, tapestries, of course, they served a dual function. They were able to keep the heat in, but they were also like portable wallpaper. You know, you could take them down, take them with you, make your, wherever you went on your peripatetic journeys as a ruler, you could take your decoration with you. But this idea of commemorating heroes, it goes, we see it in, in relation to Osberg in the old English, in, there's an old Norse poem that says, on tapestry we wove warrior deeds and the hero thanes on our handiwork. So it's almost an acceptable format in which to do these sorts of heroic stories. And in, Os- in Osberg, it's really interesting because you've got everything that Bayo has. You have horses, you have weapons, you do have women warriors, which I think is quite interesting too. And berserkers, there's a bear, <laughs> a bear man, which is brilliant. But um, you can see that it, as Michael was saying, it's like a narrative that would be accompanied, that you would uh, almost like if you were making a movie, you'd have the visual and you'd have the voiceover. The narrative that goes with it is is part of under, unpacking it. And that's partly the frustration of looking at art a thousand years in the future, that we can't get back to those, those traditions, those oral narratives. But I think, you know, with the Bayo Tapestry, it's the, the realism of it, the fact that some of that supernatural element that we see in Osberg is removed. And it's it's real people, real events, real identifiable places. And that makes it utterly remarkable. That's a very interesting point you just made there about the uh, the exclusion of the religious element from the tapestry, or at least uh, it not being obvious. Because that, in a way, for us today, does allow us to uh, to get into it more easily. Because a lot of medieval art is a, a little bit exclusive to people now in a secular society because we don't understand the, uh, the context it's in. Whereas this is... It's a pretty simple adventure story if you look at it on on that level. So, um, so that is another reason why it's uh, why it's so accessible. Michael Michael W, I was just wondering um, uh, whether you see uh, the tapestry in the uh, um, Janine just talked about that old Norse poem. Uh, whether you see the tapestry in in part of the poetic tradition. You are you are a great fan of old of old English language and and uh, and uh, prose and poetry. Do you see it as part of that uh, old English poetic tradition in any way? Well, I don't know whether it's a part of it, but what what uh, what I think is that you know this was a warrior society, and they um, and therefore deeds in war, uh, the deeds of the heroes and so on are are um, you know central to their ethos, and the you know the alternative name in the Latin sources for thanes is milites. You know what they are are migeros milites, the heavily armed thanes. The king is. You know, this was a society geared to war in the 10th and 11th centuries, you know, and they had a lot of wars and they built 60 or 70 fortresses south of the Humber in the end by the, when you count up all the books that under the kings in the 10th century. Uh, the whole edifice is built up with a military service and plus the, the heavily armed military elite. And they follow the king on his itineraries and you feast in the king's hall and the king shows his generosity and around the walls of the hall are the tapestries that show the deeds of the ancient heroes and the poetry tells those stories. Um, And sometimes we only know fragments about it. 12th century historian Henry of Huntingdon quotes little fragments in Latin of poems about the, the really ancient kings of Wessex, you know, the, the blood-soaked battles of, of uh, Kaolin and these kind of people fighting against the Britons, you know. And then you get a poem like the Brunanburg poem of Athelstan, where the, 
the uh, the great center of the poem is just about a clash of shields, you know, Heon, Hethalinda, Hamura Laffen, Swiorda Edjum, and the and the and the West Saxons hunt down the hated peoples in mounted companies, Eorod Chiste, and and uh, uh, and you look at a religious poem like Judith. Uh, well, a figure about a religious figure, a biblical figure, and the set piece is the same. Uh, the, you know, we don't have it all, but the bit that has survived is the incredible battle between the Assyrians and the Israelites, and the and it describes with loving detail what you see in the margins of the tapestry, almost the bodies lying on the floor, the military gear, the red gold, the helmets, the swords, and the and the mounted warriors hacking down the hated people, Lafan Theoda, the hated people. So this is this is their world you know and as one of your contributors said in about the um, uh, the horror of the battle you know it, well it, it is horrible what happens in a medieval early medieval battle but but this is the world they lived in and there was something you know heroic in in fighting in this way so um it the the bio tapestry is an analog to this great poetic and literary tradition and probably there were many of them if the, the if the, the the widow of birnoth who commissioned the tapestry about his battles and the battle of malden and his heroic death like harold he di- he doesn't win he dies heroically fighting you know the, the um th- there's a real connection between the two because it's about the ethos of the society i think and uh, so you know for that reason you know, I'm quite interested in to continue because there's so much more to be found out, as Michael and all the contributors have shown about the tapestry. I'm still fascinated by the, you know, the named people in the in the tapestry, from the bishops' entourage, knights. These are knights who own land in Doomsday, Wadad, and these kind of people. Um, under what circumstances was something like this produced in the old English? heroic convention where literature meets poetry, if you like. Under what circumstances was it produced? In what circumstances was it displayed? Were the stories on it told in some way? Um, It certainly shows Harold as a heroic figure, even though, let's not say this is not religious, because uh, Edward is framed by God in the beginning. We don't know what the last panel was, but... The, the this you know the, the the old English chronicles and we mustn't forget them the Anglo-Saxon chronicle, their account is no less significant than William of Poitiers or Jumiège or any of those people. Um, the the king fought that battle with those who would still stand with him. One of the Anglo-Saxon annals says, and and we were defeated because of the nation's sins. So that the the the, the passion. What you said about the passion of England, there is something in it felt from both sides, which I think, you know, Michael certainly spoke about. Uh, Sorry to jump in. Uh, Yeah, obviously, um, Michael, you and I, (laughs) we're very, we love to bring in uh, the literature, the material culture, as well as the history to make sense of these things. And, And the fragmentary nature of the evidence means we have this wonderful story we can reconstruct with 1066. But you mentioned quite a bit earlier the Birthnoth 
the idea that there was probably a uh, tapestry that would have accompanied, say, the Battle of Malden poetry. And um, and I think the idea of performance, I had the joy while I lived in York of being part of the wagon plays, the medieval wagon plays, where I was wheeled around on a wagon and we told stories. And in those ones, they were, they were religious stories. But this idea of performance, we tend to forget that... Um, there would have been a performative aspect probably uh, with the Bayo tapestry where they there would have been the sounds, the sights, the smells, the surroundings. You know, you were doing the old English there as well, Michael, but the 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 sound in the Battle of Modern where you got to Hetathan Bor de Beran, Beoras, Gangan, you know, g- the, the alliteration, the it's powerful. It's like I make the parallels with rap music, but it's rhythmic. It's it's supposed to alliterate on your eardrum and, and sort of be this very, very exciting experience. And the idea of a hall, which we know probably would have had tapestries in it, and the Bayer tapestry being this this, uh, vehicle for expressing a heroic tale, a heroic tale, both of the the valiant English hero Harold who fell despite fighting bravely, and then the ultimate triumph of the Duke of Normandy with possibly that last panel that may have shown uh, his his coronation, the cyclical nature of the whole story. I think that makes it so much more exciting when you put it in that context. <laughs> it, it, it's it's really interesting, isn't it? And I know the experts on the tapestry may go, "Oh, Stop that's it. a very speculative. <laughs> that's very very speculative." But but uh, there's got to live it. There's a living yeah. life to yeah. it, isn't there? And you and and um, it, we have to speculate because there's so many great things are, are coming out uh, about it. I think. I mean, I was being really. You will, Michael L. You will think I'm being really terrible here, but. <laughs> I, I got out the excavation plans of the ex- Anglo-Saxon Royal Hall at Cheddar. And uh, the tapestry is 230 feet long, I think, isn't it? There may be a few more feet. And if, and if you look at a typical Royal Hall, wooden hall, and they were all over, and these halls were used for hundreds of years. You know, the, 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 the Angevins even, uh, let alone the Normans, were still using the old network of Anglo-Saxon royal residences in the same old places, you know. Some of them were probably out of date, wind blowing through the walls, but the Royal Hall at Cheddar is 100 feet down either side and 30 feet at the end. So you walk in through the front door and, <laughs> and there's enough in a... A, a normal-sized Anglo-Saxon royal hall for a tapestry that length to fit perfectly. That's why it's so big. Now, I'm, <laughs> now I know I'm now, now I now I know I shouldn't say things like this, and you you academic experts on the tapestry will go, oh, come on, come on. but it just shows you when we think about how could it be shown, you don't have to necessarily think about a cathedral nave. You know that it actually, when it was originally made in in Kent, let's assume. I still have got that niggly feeling that Wadad and one or two of those those knights who had supported Odo. It doesn't have to be made Odo's command. It, it could be made by people who owe everything to Odo or respect, you know, and, and why are they named? And actually, the funny thing is the Battle of Malden poem names really obscure retainers, doesn't it? You know, it actually names people who... We have no idea who they are or what they did. But um, the author of the poem clearly thought, relevant to the household of the Dukes of the East Angles and the Dukes of Essex or wherever Bernoth was ruling at that time, that these names should be commemorated. So, yeah, I mean, I must say, listening to the podcasts, guys, it is, it is 
been so interesting to hear all these fascinating things opening up and ask so many questions. Michael L, um, you're going to have to beat down some of yeah, Michael's there's, there's, there's quite a few things to re- There's quite a few things to respond there, but I'm not. I, should, I mean, you, I'm not, you're going to have to quote I'm not, some old I'm not English poetry. I'm, I'm, kind of, I'm controlling. I'm controlling myself well here. I'm controlling myself well. I mean, I think what's interesting about the discussion we've had um, in terms of you know pre-conquest, post-conquest, and the kind of material culture, art tradition, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, um, which does kind of feed into what Michael was just sort of talking about. I think because because is the Bayer Tapestry the kind of the last gasp of, Lang- uh, of Anglo-Saxon England, or is it the beginning of uh, a new Anglo-Norman regime? And I, I think if you see it as a last gasp of the Anglo-Saxon tradition and Odo, perhaps, uh, or his followers even, tried to fit in with uh, whatever was happening before, or this is what they sort of do, then maybe, OK, I could have a tapestry commissioned and I could stick it in my hall, etc., etc., but then if they thought, right, by 1070, right, I've had enough of this lot, these English just do not do what they're told, we're just going to have to completely suppress them, then maybe the tapestry is more fitting for um, an ecclesiastical context. And I suppose that the reality is, um, uh, as has already been said, that the divide between secular um, and religious at this time is not what it is um, nowadays. The other thing uh, which Yanira was talking about, which I think is kind of um, fascinating, is about this business of um, of the people sort of in it in terms of the um, and the relation to these other sorts of narratives. Um, like you say, I mean, there isn't any religious characters as such, you know, in, in the tapestry like we have in Anglo-Saxon manuscripts um, commonly. Except for God. Apart from of course, God. Yeah, yeah I was going to say that. God. God, he's quite a big kind of character in the bible you you think but maybe not but again what michael was saying about these kind of um this warlike culture uh, the other day i was kind of um looking through the old english Institute again and i was going back to the biblical stories behind some of the scenes that are depicted and it is brutal isn't it the god of the old testament is not like the god of the new testament and i think sometimes we forget that um i'm not sure if you're religious or not but if you ever do go to church um and you hear um um, I mean, obviously, there's always a reading from the Old Testament and New Testament, but the focus is always on the activities of the New Testament predominantly, isn't it? And this kind of love to each other and all of that sort of stuff. But when you read the Old Testament, these people are doing quite horrible things to each other all the time. I kind of feel that, again, we see in the tapestry this sort of um, transformation, perhaps, in a culture. You can sort of see it drifting from one um, to the other. Um, and that's what makes it, again, so fascinating because, you know, is it an Anglo-Norman work or is it not? I'd love to come back on that just in, in terms of it, it. Both Michaels, you've both made this point about, about warrior culture. And the, you were saying there about old, the Old Testament being incredibly warlike. The Old English Exodus poem uh, is is written with exactly the same use of that powerful um, alliteration with the, the same sort of rhythmic patterns that you get in. And it's, it's again, it's got all the elements of battle poetry about it. And there's um, a cultural collision going on, I think, here as well, which is the long Christianization of the Vikings and the Anglo-Saxons over time. They would take on elements of the, the biblical stories and, and transform them, modify them in order to fit their fashions, their tastes, the things they were interested in. And again, I think an important thing we haven't really talked about an awful lot here is class, the issue of class, because when we're talking about the audience for this, I mentioned the wagon plays there. I went mentioned the idea that you could be performing this to a public. But who is this public? And in terms of 
and this art being a really expensive, like a Rolls Royce expensive artwork, this is going to be for an elite. And that elite could very well be a warrior elite. And this is um, a class of people who have been trained up to be uh, fascinated by all things warrior-like from a young age. And that idea of seeing, the, the fact that the battle is given such um, a large amount of the narrative, that there is such drama, that you can see all the technical things from the, the weaponry, the, the designs of them. There's a, it's sort of, maybe I think fitting an audience that would be less of a cathedral environment audience and more of a sort of warrior elite audience, which is why I think the whole that Michael was suggesting isn't a bad um, place to be thinking about this. But this also comes back to the very nature of the Normans themselves as Norse men, men from the North, the fact that they have this link back to Viking culture. And it's Christianized and it's um, it's set down and they build stone buildings and they begin, you know, this, this process of, of in, indulging the church with arts, with, with dedications. But there's still this underlying passion that we see bubbling away for, for warrior warrior elites. Yeah, I was going to say something um, just kind of reminded me of what you were saying there about the the, the Norman material culture, because obviously um, people have looked for evidence of um, Scandinavian culture in Normandy, mm. and it's really, really hard to Absolutely. find. There's hardly anything, Nothing, in fact. Yeah. And I know it kind of fits the kind of 11th century story that where is this sort of material culture to some extent, but it is noticeably absent. Yeah. And it is fascinating um, about how the Normans do sort of evolve in these sort of different cultures, mm. um, where they go. In Britain, we focus on the Normans in England. But of course, the Normans in Italy um, and Sicily is, is a big kind of part of their story. And of course, these Norman chroniclers try to join these narratives together. Um, but there's, there's not really much of an indication that these Normans in Sicily were having anything to do with Normans in England, apart from perhaps through the church. They weren't connected um, in a um, a political way, I suppose. Um, but the Normans in, in Normandy, they suddenly become French really quick. You know, they suddenly embrace um, French culture. And you kind of see the same sort of thing, don't you, in, in England, in a way, um, that there's an appropriation of things that they thought were useful to maintain that kind of state um, within England. But also, so again, you know, thinking about what you were saying, you need about the class issue, um, I mean, it, I think it is fascinating that at the, you know, the upper echelons, you get these massive, it seems, changes in in, in material culture in terms of obviously the presence of castles, um, even in things like manuscripts, etc. to some extent. Um, and then, you know, on the ground, um, that Danish influence still kind of drifts on, it seems, into the kind of... Um, the medieval period sort of proper. Um, it is kind of fascinating, um, really. And it is such a a fusion of cultures, really. Let's take another quick moment to gather ourselves. As I've said in previous episodes, these little pauses are very much in the style of the tapestry, where the big action scenes are punctuated by elaborately tendrilled, twisting trees to signify that we're moving on to a new event. Check them out next time you're looking at the tapestry. They're quite something. We've had a little treat there with Michael Woods and Janina trading Old English poetry and Michael Lewis taking a deep dive into this possible cultural transformative moment. But we've still not really addressed the big question for tapestry scholars and enthusiasts today. Namely, what would a biotapestry exhibition in the UK look like? So I have to force the pace on a bit now and drag our contributors to consider that. 
I'm going to have to move you on because clearly I was never going to be able to control you three. And uh, so we, can put this. <laughs> we, we need we, we need to, uh, to to have a bit of a chat about one big issue, which is that this idea of the tapestry coming to the UK again after all these years. And this would be like the the most exciting event for me personally, and I'm sure for for many people, it would surely be the biggest blockbuster historical exhibition. Uh, of all time, I, I don't know. Let's 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 go around. Is would M- Michael would 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 it be the biggest blockbuster historical exhibition of all time if the tapestry returned to these shores? In Britain, it 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 would. Yeah, I think uh, um, it would be absolutely sensational, um, and especially at this time when we're going through such issues about identity and who we are, who what is England, all these questions. And what is the relationship with Europe? And then add to that the iconic nature of the tapestry. It would be sensational if it if it came here. I was on the committee for the Anglo-Saxon Kingdoms exhibition at the British Library, and at the very and you start four or five years before it actually um, you know comes to fruition. And they were slightly iffy about it. So will people come? You know, and it sold out completely long before the end of it. The merchandise did more than the Harry Potter exhibition. Can you seriously believe that? And and I'll tell you, of all the enormous number of people who spoke to me about it, I remember bumping into one woman of Afro-Caribbean descent who worked in the kitchen at the British Library. And she said, I've been working for the British Library for 15 years, and this is the best exhibition we've ever done. I was taken aback. Why, I said. And she said, well, it's about our roots, isn't it? It's about our roots. But to that, she added, but you must understand, I am a Christian. And and therefore, seeing the Gospels of St. Augustine, uh, you know, brought tears to my eyes in front of the case. And this was an ordinary British woman, of, but of Afro-Caribbean descent. And uh, it was really fantastic. And now you, it's, it would be mega with the with the biotapestry. The only thing I would hope is, A, it should be in a place where it really can be displayed. You know, if they can solve the heating and light balance and everything, you know, somewhere like Westminster Hall would be sort of sensational, you know. But I'd like to see it being more than just the tapestry. I'd like to see ancillary things, textiles, the earlier manuscripts. I'd like to see the context. Um, I'd like them to get doomsday book back and open the Kent folios to see Wadard and Vitalis and the people in the tapestry. I'd like all that ancillary stuff to kind of come in, you know, even if dear old Corpus Cambridge were willing to borrow again the Gospels of St. Augustine and see the Last Supper picture, which must be the model for the for the, the 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 dining scene in the tapestry. So, um, yeah, I, but you always start with these ambitions, don't you, on exhibitions? And uh, uh, really, if it were only the tapestry and nothing else, it would still be just. Michael, Michael L, um, you, you work at the British Museum. Any any observations on where it ought to be uh, exhibited? <laughs> well, I was going to talk about something else before that question, if that's all right. Can I just say something? Because obviously, as you know, I mean, I've been. I'm a member of the scientific committee in in Bayo, which is about redisplaying and reinterpreting um, the Bayer tapestry there, because the way it's displayed um, 
could be uh, sort of improved. They want to sort of uh, engage a wider audience. Again, some of the things we've been talking about in terms of where the Bayer Tapestry sits within not just an Anglo-centric audience, because most people who visit the tapestry are English or French. Um, So how do you kind of make it kind of more European interest, a wider world interest, in fact? Um, so they're interested in those those sorts of things. But as part of that committee, uh, when it was kind of clear that the, tap- the tapestry would have to go off display for a period of time, I, of course, said that I think it should be loaned um, to the United Kingdom. And they basically, um, obviously around the table, mostly French people, they were they were looked at me kind of sort of horrified at the suggestion <laughs> to start with. But then over time, I think for the reasons that, you know, Michael was saying, they realised that this could actually be absolutely fantastic, not just for Britain, but for Normandy, first of all, but also um, in relations between England and France, particularly at this time now that the relationship between England and France is changing. Um, And, you know, our relationship with Europe is changing because it it was the first, it was, well, not the first time, it's one of those big moments um, in history where, you know, Britain's relationship with the continent completely changed um, in one direction. And now it's kind of changing in a a slightly different. And I don't think it's going to be a a lesser direction. I'm hoping it's going to be sort of fruitful. But but in that that context, um, you know, it would highlight that relationship between England and France, that that, that, that dual history that we have. And like I said before, in terms of Normandy, you know, that the kind of the, the Second World War sort of history as well, and how that sort of weaves into this kind of flowing backwards and forwards relationship between England and France, and how those 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 countries have changed over time. So I think it would be absolutely amazing. I think um, I agree with Michael that it would engage um, new people with this period of history. So, uh, you know, not to divide Anglo-Saxon and Norman historians in any sort of way. It's a way, in fact, of bringing those all together to be kind of fascinated about that kind of jump from one place um, to another and and how that sort of happened. Um, But because of the visual nature of the tapestry, of course, um, you know, so many people couldn't appreciate it. I mean, obviously, Doomsday Book is amazing, but if you were to do an exhibition on Doomsday, it would have interest. But the Bayer Tapestry is just something phenomenal. And like, you know, we talked about at the beginning of this podcast, um, when it was announced that the, you know, the tapestry was to be loaned, I mean, it kind of went viral, um, you know, across the British press. They got so um, into it. And, and that would obviously be the same. I mean, everyone would feel that they had to come and see it. Now, the question of where it should be displayed, from my perspective, it uh, it would make a fantastic exhibition um, at the British Museum. I think a load of people could see it. I mean, the British Museum is the, the museum of the world, um, as, as we present ourselves. So, I mean, <laughs> we would invite the world to see the Bayer Tapestry, hopefully, in a, a more kind of COVID-free um, environment. So I think that would be um, amazing. But I think on the back of that, it does provide an opportunity um, because obviously tapestry can't travel um, the nature of it. Um, and Michael's kind of highlighted the kind of um, uh, the kind of environmental conditions and obviously the support for those conditions that would be absolutely necessary. Saying that, there would have to be some sort of national celebration um, around it, I think. I think it'd be an opportunity for sites across the whole of the country um, and, um, you know, in other parts of, of, of Britain as well, um, to kind of highlight um, Norman material culture, Anglo-Saxon material culture, those sites, and get people to look for the Normans and the Anglo-Saxons kind of in the places where they live. So I think it would be a stepping stone um, to something bigger than just an exhibition of the Bayer Tapestry. Uh, Nina, if, if you were asked to be the curator of the uh, British Bayer Tapestry <sighs> exhibition, what, what would you do? Oh my goodness. 
Well, uh, well, firstly, I'd run around the room screaming, but then after I'd calmed down a little bit, I would, yeah, I would take on board both of the things that the Michaels have said about, um, I would want, okay, so I'll just take a step back and say that there are concerns, of course, with things like this, because um, just the the excitement with which the announcement was first met when it was first released, it's something that runs quite deep. So Michael W. there was saying about um, the idea that the Anglo-Saxon kingdoms, nobody thought that was going to go as big as it did, but it exploded. I My first ever programme that I made, I was, you know, so inexperienced. It was a very, very cheap program that we made. And it was called Treasures of the Anglo-Saxons. And the fact it had Anglo-Saxon in the title, it got six times more of the audience than it would have that the other programs of its ilk were getting. There's a there's a, a passion for thinking about, as Michael was describing it, roots and going back to this idea of Anglo-Saxon England as the roots of the nation. But at the same time, there's always got to be a degree of sensitivity about how these things get hijacked for nationalistic um, ends as well. And you do see the hijacking of early medieval culture, things labelled Anglo-Saxon by by groups that that really are not looking into them for their history, but are, are hijacking them for nationalistic purposes. So I would approach the exhibition of the Bayeux Tapestry as an exciting, inclusive, um, and really uh, a chance to bring as many people in to learn about the full culture as possible. That's what I thought Anglo-Saxon kingdoms did so beautifully. I was crying walking around that exhibition because I was seeing manuscripts I've read about for for my whole academic life, and they're there. They're like old friends that that I wanted to to meet. And it's it's about context, isn't it? It's about taking on board how we said right at the beginning, French. French, Norman, and English interpretations of this object. What does it mean to different people? How can it be um, useful thinking about it more as an artwork, you know, as a beautiful piece of a thousand-year-old art? What does it tell us about composition, about um, character? So there's lots and lots of ways to do this in the most exciting and creative way. And just to get a good look at the technical makings of it, how it's put together, just to just to get a sense that it's a shared history. It's been in France for 950 years, but there is an English investment in this thing. It ha- it does tell an important moment in English history. So to have it, to share it, to participate in its narrative would be amazing. Um, Michael W., what would you do if you were if you were sort of gifted the curatorship? What sort of messages would you want to be getting across in an exhibition with the with the biotapestry? More. Um... Uh, I'd like to know, I found the podcast about the making of the tapestry really interesting. And I'd like to the exhibition to give a real insight into, um, uh, you know, how it was made. If that were possible, it would be really great to see, uh, in, as part of the exhibition, actual craft of, of doing it in some way or other. Um, I'd be very interested to show the long term relationship of uh, Anglo-Saxon England, if we can call it that, with the continent. Um, The relationship with Normandy, of course, went back a long way. Emma, the queen of the English in Ethelred the Unready's time, was Norman. But the relationship went back a lot further than that, you know, Athelstan's time, certainly. It partly connects with the many continental marriages that the English, the West Saxon dynasty made between the 9th century and the 11th, you know. So, that side of it I, I find interesting, but um, the uh, 
essentially the actual act of the conquest itself for an exhibition. I think that's what you've got to focus on. And, uh, um, you know, one of the things that was raised in the podcast was the question of whether the tapestry could in some way have been a, an attempt to reach out or something like that, you know, that um, we've got to find some way of understanding each other and uh, getting over the violence. Now, um, there's plenty of evidence the, the shock didn't just last for a few years, you know, long beyond the devastation of Northumbria in 1069. Um, people who lived through those decades point to almost a century of apartheid, discrimination, violence. There's a writer in the 1160s who says, we've only just reached the point now where people really kind of intermarry and don't think about it and where, um, uh, you know, ordinary poor English can't just be killed with no legal recourse. Um, so there was a very, very long aftermath to this. So uh, I, don't want, I don't want to be a downer in a great exhibition like this, but I'd be interested in, of course, how it was displayed, the, the war tradition in poetry and, and, uh, and in the visual arts. But I'd also be interested in, 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 in where we might place it in the relationship between the English and the Normans in what followed, you know, and there's really interesting writers, William of Malmesbury writing in the 1120s, you know, he had a Norman father and an English mother. He talks about it being a um, a havoc of, of, of our dear country, a, a, a devastating time, a fatal day, a, a horrendous oppression. There's a commentary on the Book of Lamentations that's only just been published by William of Malmesbury, and he's talking about the biblical book of Lamentations, but he talks about the Norman Conquest. And he says, why is it that we grieve so, we lament so much? He's writing in 1130, you know. Um, it would feel better if the people who'd done such terrible things to us were of a higher order of civilization, were better people, were more humane, were more literate, were more civilized. But they're none of these things. They're brutal awful people. <laughs> this is somebody whose father was a Norman, you know. So, uh, or Dericus Vitalis, you know, at the same time, he's writing a portrait of William, putting words into William's mouth, you know, I've pressed the English people beyond measure. So, um, I think we can't kid ourselves um, that that the aftermath of the, the conquest wasn't, wasn't really, really difficult. But that, me, to me, makes the tapestry even more interesting, in a way, because it clearly is sympathetic to Harold and to the English. So the, I want to know more about the circumstances in which that work of art was created. And, and I actually feel, from talking to, listening to Michael and everybody else in those earlier podcasts, that there's more to come out on this and that uh, we, we are going to discover more about its origin and purpose. And, and that, that intrigues me too. I haven't really answered your question. Can I, can I jump in for Dave, a sec? Just to say, um, just for people who'd like to get a sense of the tapestry and enjoy its sheer scale and beauty, Reading Museum. Please get down to Reading Museum and see the full-size Victorian copy because at least it will give you uh, a chance to get close to sort of experience the scenes and the narrative. Um, I've also just finished a book uh, on 1066 for children. It's a, it's going to be a, a quite in-depth history, but it, uh, when I was asked, will you write a book about 1066, I said, I will, but I will only write it from the point of view of what comes before, what comes after, and not just the three men at the heart of it, but the culture 
that and how it affects the culture. So women, so everyday life. We get wonderful insights from the Bayer Tapestry about the sort of food people ate. And, um, you know, the role of women, it's 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 not easy to see in the tapestry, but those women play a, a seminal and, and enigmatic role. So there's so much more work to be done by broadening it out, putting it on a interdisciplinary canvas, getting everybody from different scientific and, uh, and, and areas of the humanities to, to bring their own different insights to it. So yeah, the future is exciting. There is so much more to discover. And if we actually had it at coming to the UK and a chance to see it up close, really look at it closely, it would be amazing. Michael, what are the scientific things that might be studied on it? Yeah, I mean, I think this is where there's a great opportunity, actually, because um, with the re-display of the museum, obviously the tapestry is going to have to be off display. It obviously needs some sort of um, conservation work as well. Um, so, um, you know, the, the committee has been sort of uh, looking at this and, and what sort of needs to be done. But that also provides a massive opportunity to do some sort of scientific work. I mean, I think we've talked about this slightly before in some of the earlier podcasts about the ability to look at the fibres and try and understand where the linen may have come from and the uh, and um, and the wool as well, you know, all that sort of stuff, and whether that kind of feeds into the hands that weaved it, whether you can see specific hands um, in it, and all of that sort of stuff. So I think there could be um, a lot of science. if there's time, et cetera, et cetera, to, to do that. And if there's a, a will, of course. Um, but I think there is. And I think that is the real possibility. And, and, and in terms of what Michael was saying about an exhibition, I think one of the problems, which we've already talked about with the Bear Tapestry, is it is such a big object <laughs> that um, it just about fits in the British Museum's um, main um, exhibition space. Oh, you've measured up, have you, Michael? <laughs> <laughs> I measured up. I got my tape measure out and made sure it just fits. But um, but it doesn't leave a lot of room for a lot else, actually. Um but saying that, because it's such a, a big exhibition, you know, is it possible to have something that kind of uh, sits alongside it, as it were, that explores some of these other sorts of themes? And that's, again, where I think there is these opportunities to do things in other places. That mm-hmm. If there's scientific work done, there could be a lot of exciting stuff that comes out of that that kind of helps place um, the tapestry. Um, likewise, in terms of the material culture, which we haven't really talked about in terms of what could be next to the Bayer Tapestry, um, apart from the manuscripts and stuff, but there's there's obviously works of art that I think us would love to see if we went to see um, an exhibition um, on the Bayer Tapestry. Although you don't want to deprive other places from having those things and doing their own sort of stories um, on the tapestry. So there's a sort of balancing act here. But I think essentially it's about bringing this sort of period um, to life. And I think that's what um, the exhibition of of the tapestry would do. It would just engage so many people with this period of history that we're all, you know, very passionate about. I also say as well that I love that idea. It's something I was looking at in Gloucester about having a central exhibition and then having branch off places. So you you know you could have. Um, it, I know the the Battle of Stamford Bridge is being recorded in a tapestry at the moment. You could have a, a breakout museum exhibition up there telling the story from the northern perspective. You could have something in Normandy that accompanies the the, the exhibition of the British Museum. But you could also have them in Pevensey. You could have something in Battle, couldn't you? You could have. Um, um, different ways for people to get out into their community and engage with, with with what would otherwise be seen as quite a London-centric exhibition, I think. So I think that's a really good way of bringing, bringing everyone together to enjoy it. 
I think, you know, clearly there will be a tapestry created to record the exhibition. There'll be a tapestry of the tapestry or, or, or something like that. Everyone's um, standing around it. <laughs> precisely. That, that will be part of the exhibition to, to do that. And I, I think it would be lovely, wouldn't it, if uh, if it was, uh, if you appealed to the audience, that, uh, Nino, as you said, that perhaps the audience was a warrior elite, so everyone has to dress up as a as a, as a Norman knight before they're allowed in. <laughs> um, but look, so super quickly, um, should we should we uh, go around uh, the, the room for some sort of final comments, final reflections on, uh, on the legacy of the tapestry. Uh, Nina, I'll, I'll throw that one to you. What's, what's the legacy of the tapestry? For me, the legacy of the tapestry is its sheer artistry. I still get goosebumps when I look at sequences there. And to think that they're a thousand years old, but they have such drama, such movement, such colour and dynamism. I absolutely adore it as a precious survival from the past. And what I think is so exciting is how it acts as a springboard. It can open up so many avenues of future research. If you see the Bayeux Tapestry as a child, you might go off and become an archaeologist on the early medieval period. You might be suddenly fascinated in costume design, in taking it um, from the point of view of the literature, the historical documents. It's a gateway. And it's honestly, when to think that it has survived at all is what surprises me half the time. To see it in the flesh, uh, in a new exhibition, to get to know more about it, to, uh, to know that it's undergoing new analysis that's going to reveal yet more secrets. I just think it is the most exciting prospect. And I will be there at the front of the queue with my ticket in hand, squealing to get in and have a look. <laughs> Well, I mean, yeah, I mean, the, I don't know what to say in, in addition to that, because I think you've covered it all. But I mean, when I go and see the Bayer Tapestry, and I've been very fortunate to be very, very close to it, I've been sort of in the exhibition case, literally, um, you know, right up close to this thing. And it is amazing the way it's um, sort of created. Um, you know, you just cannot believe um, the age of this object. Um, it, it's almost unreal to start with when you see it. And it just, you have to step back and say, is this really a thousand years old? That's probably another podcast there. Um, in there. <laughs> is it really original? I mean, it just seems so, um, so fresh at, at times. Um, and of course, you kind of meet these people that you've kind of, for us, you know, we've kind of read in these books and you kind of see them there. But also, I think what is important and what the, the exhibition, I think, could do is talk about the people behind the tapestry, the people who are hidden, if you like. So at the moment, it talks about, um, obviously, you know, William and Harold and Edward and all of these um, these great men, if you like, um, probably quite ruthless men. Um, but, you know, the women behind the Bayer tapestry who created this piece, you know, do we get to learn a bit more about them? Um, you know, in some of the podcasts before, we talked about the kind of the possible understanding the, the different hands in terms of the tension that they put on the threads. You know, can you spot different people and, and what they worked on and whether some people were more skilled because they worked on this bit or that bit? I mean, I find all of that really fascinating. And, and in my day job, you know, working for the Portable Antiquity Scheme, um, you know, we get to see objects that were lost by everyday people. And I always find that fascinating, that these are the real people who lived at, in the past and obviously for the tapestry in the 11th century. And how close can we get to them? I can't. I can't believe Love you that. just dropped in a conspiracy theory bomb at the end of this uh, this podcast. That it's, it's not <laughs> a real tough really? theory after all. Is it real? I thought that was, that's for, that's for Michael W to take <laughs> that one. <laughs> <laughs> Michael, Michael, what, what are your uh, your your closing reflections? Well, closing reflections are that I, I think it's the greatest single source that exists for the history of Britain, and it shows us 
with incredible artistry and vivacity, the greatest single turning point in the history of Britain. Uh, but it's also a very human document, if I call it a document, a very human work of art. Um, a lot of its power comes not only from the artistry and the technical skills and the sheer um, uh, scope of it, but the human feeling that lies behind it. The, the women who made this uh, understood the nature of history, the cruelty of history, the terror of war, um, the, the, the fateful things that can turn the history of nations and how people who might try to be good but do wrong, people who make mistakes, all that. And they also portrayed history in terms of not only the great events and the military actions uh, and, and the wars, and it's nearly all men, but at the same time, in the margins and the details, you get a sense of the lives of ordinary people running alongside the, the, the great events of history, the, the, the plowmen in the fields, like the illustrations from Anglo-Saxon calendars, you know, the poor people, the woman fleeing the burning house down in wherever it is, Hastings or Pevensey. So I think, I think it exists on all those levels. It's a very human document, and it has an amazing vision of history. It wouldn't so fascinate us if it didn't. Thank you very much. All right, well, fingers crossed I'll see you all in the uh, in the COVID-free queue for the Biotapestry exhibition somewhere in Britain at some point. <laughs> we'll all be there. Um, but thank you very much for that, uh, for that fascinating uh, final episode of our Biotapestry podcast. Thank you very much, everybody. So that's it, the end of this BBC History Magazine History Extra podcast series. I do hope you've enjoyed it. Thanks in this episode to Michael Woods, Janina Ramirez, and indeed all my guests over the five episodes, and of course, the ever-present Michael Lewis. I have thoroughly enjoyed delving into the swirling whirl of biotapestry scholarship, and I hope you have as well. Obviously, the big element in the room is if and when the tapestry is going to make a return trip over the channel anytime soon for that blockbuster exhibition that we've talked about. Rest assured that as soon as there's any news in that regard, we'll be talking about it on historyextra.com and in BBC History magazine. So do keep an eye out there. In the meantime, hopefully your interest is peaked sufficiently in the tapestry to want to find out more. And there is a whole host of great material on History Extra for you to have a look at. Plus, finally, the book that Michael Lewis and I have written, The Story of the Biotapestry, Unravelling the Norman Conquest, is published by Thames and Hudson in April 2021. Thank you so much, everybody, for listening. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt and Jack Bateman. A collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.